don't know if you've ever read the book, The Five Love Languages. Anyone who has done marriage prep has probably read this. I know we had to do it. Uh, had, or we, got a, we, we were given a copy of it anyway when we went through marriage prep uh, all those years ago. And the basic premise, it's written by a Christian author, it's been on the bestsellers list for years. The basic premise is that we all feel loved in different ways. That we all experience love primarily in different ways. And the five love languages, according to Gary Chapman, the author of this book, are quality time, words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. I wonder what yours is. I don't wonder enough for you to shout it out. But uh, I, I wonder what yours is, you know, because here's the thing, that, that once you know what yours is, you will want to know what your partner's or your husband's or wife's is so that you can, you can meet their needs. Because here's the thing. So, so Becky's is words of affirmation. Yeah? Uh, and so here, if hers is words of affirmation, I could buy her gifts all day. I could serve her. I could give her a back rub. And I could spend quality time with her. But it means nothing. All I have to do is say, you're doing great, girl. And, and that gets me out of everything else that's there. If you were to ask Becky what my love language is, it's personal space, which actually isn't there. But I feel loved when I'm given space. And so it just it works out for both of us. But love language is when you have a love language, that's what moves your heart. And it got me thinking, if, if God had a love language, I wonder what it would be. And I began to look through scripture and I began to see actually that there is something that moves the heart and the hand of God more than anything else and that is faith faith moves the heart and hand of God faith is God's love language when God sees faith he moves he responds he is drawn to faith in fact in the book of Hebrews it says this that without faith it is impossible to please God that's a strong term. In other words, you can come to church, you can tithe, you can give, you can serve, you can do all of those things. But if you don't have faith, God says in the words of Shania Twain, that don't impress me much. I don't know why I'm quoting Shania Twain right there. But, uh, but, but, but God says all those things, divorced and, and separate from faith, mean nothing to me. There's two types of faith we see mentioned in the New Testament. The New Testament word for faith is the term pistis, which I'm never going to say again in this sermon, okay? And it means to trust in, to have confidence in, to be firmly persuaded about, a reliance upon, or to be convinced and convicted of something. In other words, it's not just that I believe something in my head, but that I fully believe it, I am convinced of it, I am convicted of it, that I would build my life on this faith, on this belief. If the example you would always get is you know, a chair, that you're sitting on a chair right now, you didn't spend 20 minutes testing the chair before you sat in it to see if it would carry your weight, even after lockdown. You, you trusted that this chair, you had faith in this chair, that if you put your full weight upon it, it would hold you. And that's what faith is. It's not just what we believe, but it's actually what we put our hope and our trust in. And there's two main types of faith in the New Testament. There's saving faith. We are saved by faith. 
faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, when you come to Christ, what you're doing is you're putting your full faith and trust completely and totally in him. What you're doing is you're saying, I'm not trusting in my own works. I'm not trusting in religion. I'm not trusting in my own righteousness. What I am doing is I'm trusting fully and completely in what Jesus Christ has done through his life, death, and resurrection for salvation. That is what I'm putting my trust completely in right now. So when I do an altar call at the end of the service, which I do every Sunday now, and if you were to pray a prayer, I always would say that prayer did not save you. Jesus Christ saved you 2,000 years ago when he died and rose again. By that prayer, what you're saying is, I am putting my faith in what Christ has already done. I am putting my faith. I'm leaning completely on the finished work of Christ for salvation. I'm not depending on myself. I'm leaning fully on him. So that's saving faith. But there's another type of faith mentioned in the New Testament. And that is the faith by which we live, living faith. The Bible says that we live by faith and not by sight. It says the just shall live by faith. So there's the faith that saves us, and that's the bit that we're most familiar with, but there's the faith that we live by every day. That as Christians, as people who follow Christ, our life is to be marked by faith. That we're to lean daily, completely and fully on God. But here's the thing I've discovered in my life. That I don't have a lot of things, if I'm being really honest, that I stretch myself enough that if God doesn't come through, I'm sunk. I don't need a lot of faith day by day. Because most of the things I attempt... I can accomplish on my own. And if I can't do it, I know a friend who can. You know what I mean? And so, so much of my life is, 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 is built on the faith that I've been saved by. But I wonder how much of it actually is the faith that I live by. And so it's started to challenge me. Because if I'm not fully dependent on Christ, maybe I'm not stretching enough. Maybe I'm not taking enough risks. Maybe I'm living a very safe, comfortable life within my little comfort zone. Because it's only when you get out there that you realize if God doesn't come through on this, I am sunk. And as a church and as a believer, I want us to be a people who are always pushing the boundaries a wee bit. And who are always like, God, we are showing our faith to you. We're not just trusting you to save us, but we're trusting you for the future. We're trusting you for whatever lies ahead. I'm going to attempt things that I need faith for. Faith is one of those words that we maybe shy away from a bit because of the abuses of it. You know, if you've watched too much Christian TV, it's all about faith. If you have faith, you can have a Rolls Royce. And if you just have enough faith, you can have anything. And, you know, if you're not healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith. And sometimes we shy away from it, but actually the, the, the cure for misuse and abuse is not no use. It's proper use. And God wants us to be a people of faith who are saved by faith and who live by faith because there's something about faith that moves the heart and hand of God. As we read the Gospels over and over again, we see people's active faith in Christ moved him. So many times Jesus says things like, your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you well. There's something about faith that once people put their faith in him, they saw him work in their lives. And it was normally them who initiated it. 
That's the strange thing. Most of the healings and most of the miracles in the Gospels weren't initiated by Jesus. They were initiated by people with needs who put their faith in him. And he saw their faith and their faith made them well. He also says at times, he rebukes the disciples. He says, you have little faith. Five times in Matthew's Gospel, he chastises his own followers. He says, after all you've seen right now, how come you still don't have much faith? In his hometown, it says that he did not not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. That if he moves and responds to faith where there's no faith, it shuts something down within Jesus. He wasn't able to. He chose not to do much there because of their lack of faith. All of that is building up for me to look at this passage today where we see faith. And my... my My desire today is to encourage us not to be passive about faith, but to be active about faith. Not to wait for it to fall into our hands, but to reach out and grab hold of it. And that's what we're going to see as we come to this passage in, well, two passages over the next week. But it's kind of like a a sandwich, okay? So we have the start of a story, then an interruption, and then the rest of the story. And that's how Luke 5, or Mark 5 kind of is set up. It's a miracle within a miracle, but you'll see that as we go along. Let me look at verses 21 to 24. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, so he, he came across the boat in the storm, healed the guy who had so many demons. He said, I'm called Legion because we are many. And he cast the, 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 the demons out into a herd of pigs. Remember that? And the pigs went over the cliff and the people in that community said, get out of here. We're terrified of you, Jesus. And so this is right after that. So Jesus comes back across the lake on a boat. And when he gets there, we see a large crowd gathered around him while he was still by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. So Jesus went with him. So Jesus comes back across the lake and there's already a crowd here. This is the peak of his popularity. It's hard to think that that Jesus was a celebrity at this stage. He was someone who people wanted to be around. He was someone who, 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 who everywhere he went, the crowds were pressing in. Obviously, they all had their own reasons for being there. Some were spectators wanting to see a show. They'd heard about the miracles. And hey, who doesn't want to see a good healing? Who doesn't want to see somebody getting up off a mat and walking? Some of them had their own needs. They needed a miracle for themselves. And some of them had heard about his teaching because it says he taught as one who had authority not like their own teachers. So they were all there for different reasons, but there was this huge crowd there. He was causing a stir in the local community and not all of it was good because there was also a tension developing as we go through Mark's gospel. This tension between Jesus and the religious authorities, the religious Jewish leaders. And we see this increasing and intensifying the whole way through the gospel. At this stage, they've already plotted how they're going to get rid of this guy. They've already said this guy is upsetting and disrupting our religious system, which we like. And religious people don't like their system being upset and disrupted. And we don't want him to do it because he's getting the crowds. He's getting the attention. He's being given authority. And that's what we used to have. And so they're already thinking about how they can get rid of him. There's this antagonism that has built up between Jesus 
and the religious authorities. And that's really important for us to know as we come to this because we're told that this guy called Jairus was a synagogue ruler. In other words, Jairus was one of the religious elite. He was one of the the people who were opposed to Jesus. He wasn't a Pharisee, but he, he was one of a group of men who were charged with looking after the synagogue. He was a religious leader. He was respected. He was esteemed. He was looked up to in the community. People listened when he spoke. He was, I mean, even the fact, the first thing we find out about Jairus is he's identified by his position. He was a synagogue ruler. Isn't that what we do with people who are wealthy? Isn't, you know, you'll say they own a business. They, you know, they, we, we talk about them in terms of their position. And Jairus was well known and well looked up to and respected because of his position. But that meant, that position meant that he should not have been going to Jesus. Because the people who were his bosses, the Pharisees, hated Jesus. And I can only imagine what was going on in his heart in the days before this. Because we're told he had a little girl who was sick and dying. And over the last three or four days, he has sat by her bedside and her mom's there and she has never left her side. And he's watching his daughter with a fever. He's looking into her big brown eyes and 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 his wife keeps saying, go and see Jesus, he can heal her. And he's going, I'm not going to see that guy. No way. I'll lose my job. I'll lose my standing in the community. I'll lose all the respect and credibility I've built up for years. And he watches his little daughter get weaker and weaker and weaker. And eventually it gets to the stage where he says, you know what, I would rather risk my reputation than risk losing my daughter. And so he goes to Jesus and he falls at Jesus' feet. Let's keep reading, verses 24 to 28. So a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman who was there, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, she had suffered a great deal under the hand of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Luke's gospel just says she was incurable because Luke was a doctor and he didn't want to land his, uh, land his own team in it. He just said, nobody, she was incurable. This puts the blame a wee bit at the doctors. Um, but she'd spent all the money she had and she kept growing worse. growing worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. So we have Jairus, a man of standing, a man of respect, a man of esteem in the community. We know his name and we understand his position. Then we have this woman. What's her name? We have no idea. We aren't even given her name. How is she identified? Not by her position. She's identified by her condition. We're told that she's a woman with a bleeding condition. And she's had it for 12 years. Can you imagine? It's very hard for us in our culture to imagine what this was like. This woman, 12 years before this, had started her monthly cycle. And I can already feel the discomfort among the men in the room. I always joke, ladies, that if you happen to have a male boss, okay, 
and you want three months off work, just say women's problems. I guarantee you, you could take a year off and he'll never ask for any more information than women's problems. Us guys, that stuff freaks us out, okay? So, but, but the Bible approaches this and it says for, for 12 years, 12 years ago, her monthly cycle started. And in, under Leviticus law, when you were having your monthly cycle, you were unclean for seven days. And then at the end of the seven days, you went and presented a small sacrifice in the temple and you were clean again. That's just how it worked. The seventh day came and the eighth day came and the bleeding kept going. And then two weeks came and a month came and the bleeding kept going. Which would mean she was still unclean. You see, most of us can live with something for a week or two weeks or a month. Imagine six months later, she's still bleeding. Everything she touches is unclean. Anything that touches her is unclean. If she has a husband, she can't touch him. If she has kids, she can't hug them. If she sits on a seat in the house, they can't sit on a seat in the house because it's unclean. They didn't have all of the hygiene stuff we have today. She felt disgusting. She felt unclean. And in the eyes of the religious law she was, she was not allowed to come close to worship God. She wasn't allowed into the synagogue. She wasn't allowed into the temple. For 12 years, 12 years, 12 years, the blood and the life had drained out of this woman. But do you know what I find fascinating? That in verse 42, we're told how old Jairus' daughter was. How old was she? 12. One of those little things in this story that fascinates me. This was a really small community. And I can't help but wonder if 12 years before, a little baby was coming into the world. And Jairus and Mrs. Jairus looked at each other with delight as this little bundle of joy looked up at them. And they're just, they were so proud. This was daddy's girl. This was his pride and joy. And as this little new life comes into the world, five doors down the street, there's a woman who starts bleeding. And as this new life starts coming in, her life starts bleeding out. And Jairus is there to plead on behalf of his daughter. This girl is on her own. In other words, she's been isolated. She's been ostracized. She's an outsider. Nobody really cares about her that much. Jairus, he has got position and power and status and prestige. This girl, all she's got is a bleeding condition that makes her unclean. And nobody wants to touch her with a 20-foot barge pole. And after 12 years, you can imagine that she's just learned to live with this. After 12 years, she just had problems. It would have been possible for her to give up any hope that anything was going to change. Because when you've lived with something long enough, you start to identify yourself by that condition. If you've been depressed and lived with depression for 10 years, that becomes part of your identity. If you've been a victim of something and you felt it and the, the pain of it, that becomes part of you. When you live with anything long enough, that becomes part of your identity. And this woman, her identity wasn't as a woman. It was a woman with an issue of blood. That's how she was known. That's how she saw herself. That's how other people saw her. But here's the thing. Jairus, with the man with the reputation and esteem, came and fell at the feet of Jesus. 
This woman with the issue of blood with no reputation and no position came and fell at the feet of Jesus. Because when you're desperate enough, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter what job you have. It doesn't matter what status you have. It doesn't matter what position you have. When you are desperate enough and when you've come to the end of yourself, you come to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't care about your title or your position. He doesn't care about your bank balance. He doesn't care about where you live or what kind of car you drive. At the foot of the cross, it is completely level. There are certain situations that make your position irrelevant. And so Jesus goes with Jairus and the crowd are all following because they want to see a good miracle. The crowd are all following because he's famous, he's well known, and they want to go with him. But who's she? Nobody's following her. She's following the crowd. And she shouldn't even have been there. She's probably got a, a cover over her head. Because imagine if there's this massive a crowd, any, I mean, she can't help but touch somebody. They're unclean. She's risking death here. But she's desperate. And she's determined. And she's got one thing on her mind. And it is this. If I can just touch Jesus. If I can just touch him. I will be healed. Not I might be healed. Not if I'm lucky I'll be healed. She has faith in what she has heard about Jesus. That if she can... See, most of the time when Jesus healed people, he touched them. She's so convinced of Jesus' power that she says, if I can just sneakily come up behind and touch even his garment, I will be healed. That's her goal. And I I often say this, and I, I want to say it again, that faith has a goal. That a lot of the time when we don't see our prayers answered, it would be because if God did answer them, they're so vague in general that we wouldn't even realize it. Lord, would you bless my family? Help me in my job. Bless my husband. Help him to stop snoring. And Lord, look after the wains. In Jesus' name, amen. I've prayed today. I've done my prayers today. And we wonder why we don't see God move specifically in some of our situations. I am a really strong believer in being specific and being direct and that that your faith should have a focus. That your faith shouldn't be general and bland and wishy-washy, but that when you're trusting for something, you're actually telling God, this is what I need you to do in my life. If you have a son or daughter who are wandering from God and they're with the wrong crowd, just don't go, Lord, help my son or daughter. But God, in the next three months, would you bring her back to church? Would you get her away from that group of friends? And would you uh, reignite the fire in her heart for you? If you're 927 pounds in debt and you want to get back to zero, don't go, Lord, would you just bless me financially? Go, God, I need 927 pounds. And I'm praying for it. And I'm putting my faith and I'm putting my trust in you because I have a goal. I, I, I believe you can't do it. There's something about us expressing what we want that moves the heart and hand of God. I don't know why. But all I can say is Jesus comes to a guy called Bartimaeus once. And what's Bartimaeus famous for? Blind. And what does Jesus say to him? What do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus is like, is it not obvious? 
Like seriously, Jesus? But there was something about Jesus that wanted him to express it. I don't know why, but the Father has set up this world in such a way that when we speak our prayers, heaven moves. In his absolute sovereignty, he has delegated responsibility to you and I to come before him and ask him to meet our needs. And I don't know why. And you go, well, you're talking about bringing a shop on us before God. No, I'm not. I'm not talking about coming with just your wishy-washy sort of, you know, I'm talking about those real needs in your life. These were not small needs. Those things that you need God to break through. Those things where you've come to the end of yourself. These two had come to the end. There were no other options. Those things where you're like, God, if you don't move, I'm sunk. God wants us to come and express us. He wants us to come and be clear and focused and definite. When the Apostle Paul tells the churches he's praying, he doesn't just go and pray for you. He tells him in about six verses exactly what he's praying for them. Faith has a focus. I remember, oh, what time is it? Oh, I have so many stories I want to tell you right now. Uh, a few years ago, I was asked to do a, a wedding by a couple called Johnny and Judith. And I was friends with them, but I wasn't like friends, friends with them. You know what I mean? And I was a bit confused about why they were asking me to do their, their wedding in, in the Clandy Boy in Bangor. But I'd agreed to do it, and I was happy to do it. And I tried to convince them to get somebody else. But no, they were like, Craig, we want you to do the wedding. And so I did the wedding, and lovely couple. It was an amazing day. And Johnny and Judith, I know you watch this. I loved it, okay? And, uh, but afterwards, I was in the car park because I'd made an excuse about why I couldn't go to the reception. And the truth is, I just don't like receptions. And... Uh, because I always get asked to say grace. And, <laughs> don't you? The minister will say grace. And everybody's heart sinks. And, uh, but afterwards I was in the car park and, Johnny and I was about to leave and Johnny and Judith said, Craig, will you come here? And they said, you were probably wondering why we were so determined that you would do our wedding. And I was like, well, actually I kind of was. They said, here's the story. They said, in 2015, in July, you were preaching in the Causeway Coast Vineyard. It was the first time I'd ever spoken there as a visitor. We were in Dublin at the time. I'd spoken in the Causeway Coast Vineyard. And at the 9.30 and the 11.30. But at the 11.30, I'd felt prompted to tell a story about a girl in our church who was in her late 30s and had met a husband. And as I told that story, there was a thousand people in the room. It was a July fortnight up in the North Coast. I pointed to a specific part and I said, and there's a girl here, she's 36, she's single, she's fed up with it, she's about to give up. And I want to say to you, in the next 12 months, you're going to meet your husband. And Judith says, at that moment, I reached up and I grabbed that thing. (laughs) She says, I was 36, I was single, I was fed up. And I wanted to get married. And she said, Craig, you pointed in my direction. And she said, I took hold of that word. And I took it for myself. And I began to speak it over my life. I began to believe God that he was going to bring me a husband. And nine months later, she met Johnny. And a year and a half later, I did their wedding. She knew what she was going after and she took it. When we were living in Dublin, we had to move out of, you remember the rat house I told you about a wee while ago, some of you who were here? We had to move out of the rat house and we were really struggling to, to find another place. And we decided to make a list of what we wanted in a house. Some of you girls, you do that with a husband. So, you know, some of your expectations are like, but, uh, you know, he's got to be a cross between Brad Pitt and, and you know, whatever. But uh, 
anyway, I shouldn't get sidetracked. So we, 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 wanted, we, we made a list of about 15, 20 things we wanted in a house. And we wanted a house with a garden because we have a little boy and we wanted somewhere for him to play. And he was about two or three at the time. But I kind of really wanted a balcony. I don't know why. I think it's because a balcony always makes me feel a wee bit like I'm on holidays. You know what I mean? And so I really, really wanted a balcony, but you don't get a house with a balcony. You get an apartment with a balcony, you get a house with a garden. But we thought, you know what? Let's put it all down there. And we put lots of, it had to be within walking distance of the church and all of this. And we put this list down and we went to see this apartment that didn't work. And she said, there's this other house that they're about to, they're fixing up. It's about to be ready. Would you like to come and see it? And we went to see it. And it was a house with a balcony. <laughs> the upstairs was downstairs and the downstairs was upstairs. And the kitchen was upstairs. And you walked out the back and there was a beautiful balcony. And you know what? Like, God has bigger things to deal with right now. You know? Between the Middle East and President Trump being in hospital. He has more than a balcony to deal with. And yet there's something about God that he cares about your desires. He doesn't just meet your needs. But he actually, as a father, Loves to hear your desires as well. And sometimes he just gives you that wee bonus. Just as a sign of I hear you and I love you and I'm for you. And I would say to us today, would we become a people of tenacious faith? A people of specific faith? A people who aren't just praying bland general prayers, but a people who focus our prayers, focus our faith, and actually ask God to do specific, amazing, powerful things in our lives, in our families, in our community, that if it happens, we know it has to be him. It has to be him. Because it couldn't have happened any other way. And then he gets glory and honor and praise. Because most of our prayers, like I say, are so vague and so general that if God answers them, we have no idea. It might have happened anyway. This woman had a tenacious faith. There was a crowd there, but nothing was going to stop her getting to Jesus. Look at verses 30 to 34. We're finishing up right now. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? And Peter said, everyone get out your contact tracing apps right now. <laughs> you, that's a 2020 version of the NIV. You see the, people, you see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. I, I love that. I read that phrase this morning. And, you know, we told him the, she told him the whole truth. A lot of us tell the truth, we just don't tell the whole truth. We tell enough of the truth sometimes to make people convinced that we're telling them the whole truth. You know, like one of the things a counselor does when some, you're with somebody is you say, oh, okay, tell me the 5% that you haven't told me. Because most people will withhold some part of the truth. She told Jesus the whole truth. She was risking her life doing this. She was embarrassed. She was ashamed. But she did it. And he said to her daughter, your faith is healed. You go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So she touches the hem of Jesus. She's a sneaky one. She pushes through the crowd. She touches the hem. And I don't know what happened, but something in her body shifted. Something in her body changed. And she went, energy started to come back and the life started to come back and she's like that is all I wanted and her only thing right now is to sneak out of there as quickly as possible without being seen but Jesus says somebody touched me and the disciples are like Jesus everybody's touching you right now 
And he's like, yeah, but there's touching and there's touching. You see, there was a crowd touching him, but there was only one woman who touched him in a way with faith that pulled something out of him. And Jesus says, I actually felt power going from me, leaving me. This woman, Jesus hadn't intended, this woman grabbed hold of Jesus and she pulled the power out of him. And he's not going to give up. She just keeps crawling away, going, nobody here, not going to see me. And Jesus, the word actually says he kept looking at the perimeter. He wasn't letting it go. And eventually, as she feels there's something happening in her body, and she knows she's not going to get away, she goes, it was me. I have to say it was me. And she told him what had happened. And look at what Jesus says to her. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I've read this passage so many times over the years and I've preached on it in different times and there's something I've never seen here. Jairus comes at the start of the story and who is he pleading for? His daughter. His daughter who he loves. This woman has no daddy to come and plead on her behalf. She's been excluded. She's an outsider. She's untouchable. She has no daddy or no husband or no man to come before Jesus and plead on her behalf. So what does Jesus do? He calls her daughter. In other words, you might not have somebody to come before you and represent you. I'll take that role. And he not only heals her physical body, but he completely heals her identity. She's no longer the woman with the issue of blood. She's the daughter of the Son of God. And I love that. I think there's something so beautiful about that. That Jesus didn't look at her according to her condition. He looked at her and said, I want you to know that you're precious to me. You are not an outsider, you're an insider. And not only am I healing your body, but I'm calling you back into the fold. Daughter. It's the only place in the whole Bible where Jesus calls somebody daughter. And it's a woman that nobody could touch. And I just think there's something incredibly beautiful about that. That Jesus changes our identity. He heals our body. But sometimes, you know, we can get our bodies healed. But if our mind is the same, it doesn't make much difference. But Jesus not only loves us enough to heal our bodies, but he speaks into the deepest pain in our hearts. He speaks into those places of hurt and abandonment and abuse and loneliness and addiction and isolation. All those places that, that were bleeding on the inside. And he not only heals us outside, but he speaks to those places and he speaks life and he speaks identity and he speaks forgiveness and he speaks grace and he speaks love. You know, but four years ago, I was preaching on this passage one Sunday night in another church. And actually, I was preaching, I was trying to skip over this passage. I was preaching about Jairus' daughter and I was trying to just to get past this bit as quickly as I could. If I'm being honest, but as I read this verse about the woman with the bleeding condition being healed, the Holy Spirit in that moment just stopped me. 
And I looked down at the congregation of about 300 people that night and I said, and there's a girl sitting here and she's had the same condition and the Lord's healing you right now. And I was like, where did that come from? And, and I just kept going on with my sermon and I never thought another thing of it. About four months later, I'm walking down Port Stewart Promenade and I hear, Craig, Craig. And my heart sinks in that moment. And uh, he's like, I just want to go to Three Kings for a coffee. Um, and it was a woman from church and her daughter. And she said, wait there, I'll come across. And I'm like, okay. And, uh, and they come across and she's like, my, my daughter wants to tell you something. It's a bit embarrassing, but she wanted to tell you it. And I said, what is it? And she said, you know, Craig, about four months ago, you were preaching on Sunday night about the woman with the issue of blood, and you said that somebody was healed, and I vaguely remembered it. And she said, that night I was there, and I'd been bleeding for months and months and months and months. And I'd went to the doctors, and they couldn't figure out what it was. And this girl's maybe 21, 22. She says it was really becoming debilitating. I wondered if I'd ever meet a husband. I wondered if... It was just starting to... I didn't want to even leave the house, she said. But she said, that night... When you said that, I took hold of that. And she said, I went home that night and the bleeding had stopped and it has never come back again. I love that Jesus touches those places that most of us are like, ugh, I'm not going there. Jesus isn't squeamish. We have a God who touches us wherever we need touched. And here's the wonderful thing. That when the pure Jesus touches the impure, he doesn't become impure. We become pure. You see, anyone else touched her, she, they became unclean. When Jesus touched her, he, she gets what he has. He doesn't get what she's got. And this morning I want to say this to you. That no matter what you've been doing, no matter what you've been, no matter what your background is, you're not defined by your position and you're not defined by your condition. You're defined by the Son of God. You're not defined by how you feel or how you failed, by your sin or your sickness, by your addiction or your regret. You're defined by the Son of God. And you know what he says over you today if you're a child of God? He says, you're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I want to restore you. I want to heal you. Your primary identity is not what you've done or what you do. It's who you are in me. My daughter, my son, my child, I love you. And if you will take hold of that by faith this morning and make that your reality, you will experience the power of God in your heart.